Today is Tuesday, April 19th, and this is episode number seven of Hard to Kill. Okay, welcome back for another episode. Glad to have you. Uh, as always, this is Jeff Allgaier. I don't care what you say. I am introducing yourself. Well, that's fine. That works too. And I'm Katie Allgaier. Um, we'll start today, as we always do, just with some interesting new information, research that has come out uh, over the last little bit. Again, as we go through all this stuff, our, our mindset is always focused on... Um, you know, information that comes out that that helps us uh, strengthen the body, increase resilience, focuses on health, on longevity, being hard to kill. Right. That's what we're about. Or interesting stuff that comes out that maybe doesn't teach us how to do that, but that relates to that in some way, shape, or form. So right. go ahead. All right. Facts and stats coming out of The Lancet Public Health, March 2022. This is about exercise, how many steps per day, question mark. A systematic review that included 15 studies found that for adults over the age of 60, an average of 6,000 to 8,000 steps per day is associated with a reduced risk of premature death. Meanwhile, for adults under age 60, the optimal number of steps appears to fall in the 8 to 10,000 steps per day range. So the, the you know again as we go over these studies too I think the, these studies are always done in such kind of a weird way uh, there it seems like whenever we're going over these studies they're always done in the framework of can this help prevent an event we don't want like dying early or something like that it's never really designed in the concept or like they're, these studies are never done in the framework of is this something that is essential for us to thrive and function at 100%, right? So you and I would have argued for years that obviously movement and getting steps is just a basic fundamental. I always talk about at our workshops that we do on movement that we have to think of movement like breathing. Like it is essential nutrient. Movement for your brain and in many other parts of your body is an essential nutrient to help keep your body functioning. And if you, just like if you stopped breathing, there's going to be negative consequences. So we wouldn't say that if you continue to breathe, this helps prevent early death. Like right. it's a treatment, breathing is a treatment to prolong or prevent early death. Like it's kind of a stupid paradigm that we right. do all this research in. Uh, but we are going to try and pull some of these nuggets out. So again, just to kind of recap it, they, this study showed that if you're over the age of 60, that we should shoot for. You can move less. 60 to 8, or 6,000 <laughs> to 8,000 steps every single day. But under 60, we should be shooting for eight to 10,000. We've said 10,000 steps as a minimum for yeah. years. Um, I mean, most of the recommendations, whether it's exercise or like nutritional supplements, it always seems to be like the bare minimum is recommended just to keep you out of a disease state. Right. And that's one. Well, this is exactly, yes, exactly the point. It, you know, when, if we, it, this is kind of hard to describe verbally, but if we, if you look about your, your body on a continuum of 0% function would be death, 100% function would be normal health, you know, let's say somewhere between 40 and 60% function of a body part is where we're going to, uh, we're going to notice clinical 
signs or symptoms. And the reason your body doesn't show clinical signs and symptoms, let's say your heart is functioning at 80%, you may have no clue that your heart is functioning at that level because the body is so good at adapting and making up for weaknesses. Like it was gonna, it's always gonna try and find a way around because your body likes homeostasis. We've talked about this on other podcasts. It likes to operate within a very normal range. So if your heart isn't functioning, your kidneys might have to step up. Mm-hmm. Your, you know, whatever, whatever it is, whatever the mechanism is, your body's going to try and buffer that dysfunction by altering function somewhere else. The problem is that just taxes the whole system. And over time, your whole body can wear out and we right. can eventually get symptoms. And people act like, you know, when it comes to like cancer, for instance, most cancers don't become symptomatic until late stage three or early stage four, you know, and people think that they're healthy. And then all of a sudden we're diagnosed with cancer and it was the cancer that made them sick. And the reality was, is that Somewhere along the line, their body was losing so much function that we even developed this cancer in the first place. It just didn't become clinically or sim- clinically observable or symptomatic until late. Mm-hmm. And this is why using this paradigm, I think, is a little bit silly. And just exactly to your point, you know, we use the benchmark of 40, 60% function in the body as health in a lot of these studies. It's whether there's an observable clinical symptom or not. It's not designed. So, like, how many steps would it take to optimize body function? is very different than how many steps should you get in the day just to not die. Yeah. Right. Or to live longer. Like there's a difference between, we always talk about this, right? There's a difference between being happy versus just being not sad. Right. So would you rather be joyous or just not sad, not depressed? Right. Would you rather be rich or just not poor? And I know there's people listening to this and they're like, I just want to be not poor. You're a liar. Liars. Right, rich. We want to be rich versus not poor. Obviously, bankrupt is terrible, but there's a difference between not poor and being rich. Abundance, thriving versus surviving. And so, mm-hmm. our whole aspect is thriving. We want to move the goalpost when we're looking at this. And again, we don't aren't the ones that do these studies. We just get to report on them. But I just think it is interesting that this is a baseline benchmark that they have found that when we do these studies. It looks like you live longer if you do this amount. But to thrive, it should even probably be more than that. Mm-hmm. So yep. we always, it, uh, you know, we've always said 10,000 steps. That that should be the baseline minimum of movement every single day is 10,000 steps. Again, genetically, hunter-gatherers built for movement. It's a normal part of our, of our body's requirements mm-hmm. on a daily basis for health. So... Um, Absolutely. Not to hijack your little thing there, but again, I just think it's important as we're going through all this stuff that, you know, I just don't want people to think, oh, as long as I hit the 6,000 steps mark, then I'm going to be healthy. I mean, that's again, not necessarily what this is saying. Next. Next. Let's talk about, about mental attitude. So this little nugget of information came from American Heart Association, March 2022 as well. The biggest risk factors for dementia. The American Heart Association reports that 42% of dementia cases in the United States can be attributed to these 12 factors. I'm going to list them. Lower educational attainment, hearing loss, traumatic brain injury, high blood pressure, excessive alcohol consumption, obesity, smoking, depression, social isolation, not getting the recommended amount of physical activity, diabetes, and air pollution. I think this is hilarious because 
you could probably say these are the 12 biggest risk factors for everything. Everything. And this, again, kind of proves our point that like disease occurs because the body is unable to adapt to the stressful environment we put it in. We talked about this, I think, yeah. on our first podcast, right? So there's either a problem with the body's internal ability to deal with stress. It means our adaptability is decreased. This is, you know, the chiropractic premise. This is why we care so much about the nerve system. This is the system in your body that is designed to understand the environment and cause changes in your body to adapt to that stress and or then the stress in the environment is so toxic that the body just begins to break down. Mm -hmm. So obviously the cure or not the cure, but the best way to prevent dementia and every other disease is to live in congruency with a, with your genetics, make sure your body's adapting and your environment is congruent with your genetics. And when we don't, consequences happen like dementia. What actually surprises me, this was only 42%. Right. So the majority of people, not which I, again, my inkling is that we're, it's much, much, much higher than that, but we're just not great at parsing out the statistics to, to show, right, that, right. that, uh, I mean, again, someone's clinically depressed is very different from someone's, you know, yeah. uh, you know, brain not, or being 80% happy or whatever, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Which wouldn't have shown up as a, tis- as a statistic for depression to add to that. But um, interesting. It's I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in on that too, just because I think one of the things you said there was, what was the first thing it was? It was like, lower education. Right. And so there's, the, this is one that I picked out. This is from Neurology. This was published in March, 2022. Um, researchers analyzed data on 619 Catholic nuns and found that those who finished college were twice as likely to regain their thinking skills after they received a diagnosis of uh, cognitive impairment. And so prior history of critical thinking, using your brain, even after something that happened like Alzheimer's or dementia, they were twice as likely to be able to regain or recover from that, um, which I think is important. You know, your brain is, I mean, it's not a muscle. But it works just like a muscle. That old adage, if you don't use it, you lose it. So this is the same thing as we're, again, maintaining to be hard to kill. I think I talked about this on the last podcast too. Dementia and brain function is one of the things that scares me most about when we talk about losing health. It's, you know, developing some sort of brain dementia issue or something like that. Alzheimer's or whatever. Um, So keep... I, I think of my grandmother often, my mom's mom, who is, that gal is a reader. I mean, mm-hmm. she can read a book in a day. I remember this even from a, a kid, but she's one of the smartest people I know. And is, I mean, again, she lives in Canada now. I don't talk to her all that often, but is, you know, has always been one of the smartest people I know. And just, I think, maintains. Full of wisdom. Yeah, totally. She's, and just yeah. sharp, quick, yes. you know, and a lot of things. So, um that was always a good example to me of how important it is to keep your brain exercised. Yeah. And we do that with reading. We do that with you can do math. Puzzles. Yeah. Wordle. Oh. Wordle. <laughs> yeah. No. Words with friends like my mom. Yeah. But seriously, that sort of stuff actually is beneficial. Mm-hmm. I mean, that using your brain and not just, yeah, I think it's too easy for us to, to, we've talked about this a little bit, even with our kids, like playing video games versus watching 
TV. I'd much rather have them play a video game that they're actively using their brain to make decisions in than just to sit there and consume, mm-hmm. just to watch a cartoon, just to watch a movie. It's very passive. There's really no thinking going on. You're just a sponge. You're mm-hmm. a consumer, not a producer. And so at least with at least with some of these video games, you're, you know, they're not moving. It's better than I'd rather have them be outside. But, you know, again, it's at least using the brain in a critical way, which I think is important. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't trump reading. And unfortunately, it seems like the more they enjoy video games, the less they enjoy sitting and reading a book. Well, it's slower, it's right? Less, yeah. It's less stimulation. Yeah. Um, I, this is kind of a little bit of a tangent, but, and it's very quick. I came across, I can't remember where it was exactly, um, that I read this, but the, just reading to your kids every night, not even them reading necessarily, that habit improves their, um, their educational scores. Right. Just through just that that habit of loan of, of of reading every night before bed or whatever in the morning or both, yeah. um, it helps them in school quite remarkably. Kind of cool. Well, let, let me jump in then really quick, just because that's kind of an interesting segue to oh. another one that I yeah. jumped in here, and then I'll let you finish yours because sure. you've got other stuff. But uh, there was a study that came out in JAMA, Journal of American Medical Association of Pediatrics, March 2022. Again, these are all really recent things, but um, according to a recent study, childhood diagnosis for anxiety and depression increased by 27 and 24% respectively. Those are quarter increases between 2016 and 2019, both each, which is a 50% increase overall. Unfortunately, the researchers note that about a fifth of children who could benefit from mental health services are not getting them. It's too late by that point. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is the, the again, <laughs> I, we've talked about that before. Like, it's funny how where they go. It ju- we just need more mental health services. Well, I, I don't think that that's useful, useless, but we're too late. It's like we just do we need more fire departments. Right. Like, again, how, address the cause, man. Right. Like we, we've got to be dealing with this. And so, I mean, it's kind of your point about, you know, family structures and, you know, what does a child need to thrive. I mean, where, where is anxiety and depression coming from in a kid? And m- part of my opinion is it's a learned behavior. Mm. And I think when they look at us and they see us as anxious and depressed, right? Mm-hmm. These are learned behaviors. Like I, you know, it just, Absolutely. I don't, oh, it's genetic. Nah, not as much as we think, I believe. Right. I think a lot of it is learned. You know, there can be some genetic components to it, but n- nature tends to win out over nurture a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, and we're not, you know, I'm not saying we're perfectly perfect nurturers of our of our children, but you know that that is a that is a very concerning thing. And I think that's when we talk about this being hard to kill. It's not just about as an adult. I mean, this starts at a young age, and really, it's probably even more important that these habits get started at a young age than by the time you're an adult, because again, kids are developing, they're learning their environment, and a lot of these behaviors, mindsets, everything gets set in. At a young age. Before the age of three, right. I've read at one point. Right. Where they're, I mean, and we've heard this before that kids' brain, brains are just sponges around that time, but that's where they obtain the most amount of, of input from their environment is ages zero to three. So their environment that, that we put them in um, at that age, even though they really people like oh all they need to do be is fed and diaper changed 
and maybe held every once in a while. But yeah. their environment makes a huge and impact if at you, that age. If you think about all the things that we're talking about here with, so far we've talked about sleep. I've got another set to go over sleep today. We've talked about, you know, I mean, obviously all this stuff, movement, food, mindset, love, social connections. As you read in that dementia thing, I think social, I isolation, social isolation was one of them. Right, yeah. like all, think about all these things that affect adults and all of these environmental toxins the water that we drink, the food that we eat, the food coloring, all this stuff, the Wi-Fi, the, the 5G. This affects kids. And guess what? They're a quarter of the size of an adult. They're like, the canaries in the coal mine. A, a lot more adaptable, typically. I believe, than adults because yeah. we're so broken and pathetic as we get to adult age half the time. But it's affecting like all this stuff should be even more concerning for a kid to go, listen, when I eat a Cheeto, mm-hmm. I, I'm at least a full-grown adult man when i give that to my kid they're one quarter of the size of me so they're getting four times the amount in essence Mm -hmm. four times the amount of the stressful load because their bodies are a quarter of the size right or whatever it is it's just as amazing to me and i was thinking about that the other day it's like they're even more susceptible and it actually is amazing to me to look at how well our kids actually do considering how they are raised generally in america today yeah so We've got work to do with ourselves. We've got work to do with our kids. And it has to, uh, I really firmly believe that if we implement a lot of these principles of getting our lifestyle back to what we're genetically designed for, living in congruence with that, social community, movement, sunshine, light, uh, proper sleep, that you would totally see those numbers. You know, We don't need more mental health services after the fact when they've developed it. What we need is a focus on health right from birth yeah, to prevent this stuff from happening, right? I mean, a famous, one of our mentors, we've talked about before, James Chestnut, and he always said, if, if we had unlimited doctors and medications and it was all free, right? America would, would get sicker, health- exactly. not healthier, right? Exactly. It's not, this is not a shortage of, of services. Again, do we need more fire departments? Well, I mean, I hopefully not. Like if the houses keep lighting on fire, we have to solve that. You can put a fire up house on every corner, but the house started on fire. There's damage already. I don't care how early the fire department gets there. Thank God for the fire department. We get the idea. So. All right. All right. My last little tidbit um, is from the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And also from last month, March, 2022. Half of Americans exposed to lead in childhood. So this is an analysis of blood lead levels of more than 11,600 children collected between 1976 and 2016. And this revealed that more than half had lead levels above 5 micrograms per deciliter of blood, which is above the current cutoff of 3.5 micrograms per deciliter. Um, The author, Dr. Aaron Rubin, adds, and I quote, A significant proportion of Americans alive today had very high lead exposure as children, and millions had lead levels that were were even three, four, or five times higher than the cutoff for clinical concern as as children. So that could be an underlying factor of a lot of our current um, health issues that um, adults experience today. And kids. And kids, yep. Um, but I have recently found sort of, uh, underlying 
common denominator amongst some of these these statistics um, that is not mentioned the the one for dementia and then this this other um, stat and it's this mineral imbalance we're finding with um, us being overcalcified and over ironed so mineral imbalance and you mean like just in our environment in foods our that environment. we eat yeah they're very dominant i mean you do see this on i mean even orange juice has calcium added yeah now right so and iron fortified foods are rampant in like in our cereals right. and grains yep no. yep so the problem what we're finding or from what i'm reading is when you are over calcified um and have too much iron in your system, those two things compete for your body's absorption of magnesium. Um, copper, which copper is quite a bit depleted in our environment, but you can still find it in sources um, like um, animal organs, like liver and oysters and things like that. So that's a big plug for um, all, all you carnivores out there. Good job. Um, retinol, so vitamin A is also um, very, very depleted because of this mineral imbalance. So um, I don't know if you want me to get into, like, I just thought that was very interesting. I'm still kind of learning more about this iron overload. Um, they even, uh, one of the common things with people that have had severe or uh, infection from COVID or have died of COVID one of the things that's consistent in their blood work as well as being, you know, having comorbidities is having a humongous, huge, overloaded iron in, in their system. Yeah, so I think two things um, to go over with here. And this is what this is, you know, we think about oh, it's a vitamin. Right. So it's a it's I'm glad I'm getting all this food that's got vitamins in it. And I take all my vitamins, take all my supplements. Vitamins are not healthy or not healthy. I mean, it very much depends on the person taking it. Right. So like water is water healthy, Kate. Um, yes, but too much can kill you. <laughs> right. Not if you're drowning. Like, <laughs> I mean, you can literally either. drink so much water. I mean, it's rare, but you can literally drink so much water that you deplete yourself of everything else. Like it's you have to flush it out and you pull is it hypernutremia or hyponutremia? It would be hypernutremia, too much water, I would imagine. Okay. But I don't know. I don't, I don't remember. Yeah, Neither here nor there. Latin. Um, I just wanted to sound smart. But this whole this whole thing of, you know, this is a concept that I think is important. Uh, food, movement, a chiropractic adjustment, therapy, whatever it is, is not healthy or not healthy. It depends on what the individual needs. Mm -hmm. Right? So... If you're depleted in iron, yeah, taking iron is a good idea. But if you already have adequate iron and you take too much, it's now a toxin. So the same thing that can be healthy or a vitamin in some people can be a toxin in others. Mm -hmm. you know, we're big proponents of vitamin D. I'm going to get into vitamin D in a second here. But, you know, you can, when you orally take vitamin D, you can take too much. It's almost impossible to get too much vitamin D if you're outside building it naturally, which we can talk That about. is the best way. And there's critics now of... Oral vitamin D. Oral vitamin D. Right. Vitamin D3 even. Right. So. Um, the point though is uh, that again, we have to, we have to get away from this concept that things are just healthy and not healthy. 
Uh, it depends on depends on what's going on. So when we look at when we're buying our foods and we have all this exactly to your point, iron fortified, vitamin fortified, we've really upset the natural intake a lot of these minerals and mm-hmm. we've become so dominant in things like calcium. Oh, we need it for bone strength. Uh, the reality is, is that most of us get plenty of calcium, mm-hmm. plenty of calcium. And uh, and you can actually calcify certain yes, bits of your body, like your pineal gland, which is associated with dementia. Right. Just throwing that out there. Very good. Uh, you know, we have these things like, well, we got to prevent osteoporosis. Well, okay, except osteoporosis, generally speaking, is not a calcium intake deficiency. No. Right. It's a inflammation deficiency in the body. It's an acidity problem in the body that your body has to pull calcium out of your bone to produce something called calcium carbonate to buffer your blood because your body likes to live in homeostasis. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it does not like to live in acid. It likes to maintain blood pH and sound. So it balances that and it will literally pull. It's going to make the best of a bad situation because your body is smart. And this is why I was getting into this with a patient the other day. We, when we look at blood tests, and like someone can be in really rough shape health-wise. You can tell they're struggling. You look at their blood test and it's fine. You know, they're in range. But the thing with blood is that your body tries to regulate your blood chemistry so tightly. And it doesn't really tell you the amount of work your body is having to go through to keep it there. Mm-hmm. Right? Like for instance, we could look at your blood pH and go, oh, it's within range. But if you're having to suck calcium out of your bones to, to, to build something called range. calcium yeah. carbonate to buffer your blood, to turn it from acidic back to a normal pH. We don't see that necessarily on a blood test. It just looks normal on a blood test. And that not saying blood tests are useless, but there is a weakness there that your this is your body is uh it doesn't tell us the amount of work your body's having to go through to try and keep it in that normal range. Eventually the engine will blow and when things so what when a blood test a blood test doesn't show you a problem is coming. A blood test shows you that you're all if you have a problem on a blood test you're already sick. Mm-hmm. Like there's already dysfunction there because your body couldn't regulate that as tightly as it wanted to. And it, it ran out of an ability to adapt and then disease occurs. Yeah. So uh, interesting there. Number two, um, uh, this was, I read this in a book a while ago. It made a lot of sense to me, of course. Uh, one of the hypotheses of why women live longer than men is because of iron buildup in male bodies, which actually for longevity is not a great thing, as you pointed out. Right. One of the benefits of, <laughs> I don't really call this a benefit. I'm so glad I'm a male, but uh, is menstrual cycles and, and the, you know, having a period and bleeding for, you know, five days, five days, well, it varies. five days out of a month uh, actually, you know, helps to discard some of that excess iron that can even accumulate through diet and everything else mm-hmm. in a female body. And, and literally one of the things that they was recommended for longevity is to give blood, especially for males, is to give blood on a regular basis to help get rid of some of that iron that we are accumulating in our body. Um, so I've done it. I don't do it regularly enough. I'm a, a fan of the, uh, what's his name? What's the movie? We were quoting it earlier. Zoolander? No, no, no. Dodgeball. Oh, Isn't oh it's it Dodgeball. dodgeball? Ben Stiller, but in dog Nobody blood. makes me bleed my own blood. Nobody makes me bleed my own blood. Oh, sorry. I stole that thunder. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so anyway, uh, that is an interesting thing about about lead. Uh, sorry, iron buildup, as you were yeah. mentioning earlier. There's so. other ways to chelate or detox from from that heavy metal um, or iron overload and calcium uh, overload too, like sauna or infrared. You can sweat it out. 
there's supplements, coffee, actually. So that's this is a little plug for coffee. We talked about coffee in podcasts before where some studies say they're it's bad and some say it's beneficial, but well, apparently that sort of helps. Um, again, it's this is the whole thing about these studies that one time it can be good for you, one time bad. It's, <laughs> it's not individual. It, well, the, well, a little bit. And it's the studies are not done on is this an essential nutrient for optimal health in the body? It's right. done in a in a allopathic paradigm. It's done in, in a, a disease treatment, treatment paradigm. Yeah. So it's like it, it coffee might be good for um, for detoxing, uh, but there's lots of toxins in there's other toxins in coffee. Right. So there's that whole side of it too. I enjoyed my 100%. cup of coffee this morning, by the way. But it is, I mean, that's the problem is, you know, with all of this, it just depends on the circumstance. I and mean, we've gotten into this uh, eventually on the podcast. We will get into this debate that you and I are currently having on uh, vegetables. And <laughs> I am becoming much more swayed by the carnivore diet. And, and I'm less so. Yeah, less so. And as a, I, I also think, so just to get personal, I also think you're very biased because you have this affinity towards, towards the Bible, towards gardening, and that, <laughs> as someone who loves and is, we're building gardens, and you're growing your broccoli in our entryway or not entryway. What is that called? Yeah, well, the patio door, and we have a rack with all these plants that are growing in there right now. But I, I do think your bias is clouding your judgment on this one, but we'll get into that at a later at a later date. It, it, the whole thing with that is just with every upside, with the there's lots of good things in vegetables, but they also come at a cost. There's lots of chemicals and toxins, not even man-made, literally put there by the plant and by God, if you want to go there, that are actually, again, plants, well, we won't, we won't get into it. Teaser, plants don't want to be eaten. So they have chemicals to defend themselves. Fruits, maybe. Seeds, no. Plants, No. We'll hmm. talk about. It. We'll have a debate. Let's do that. Yeah, let's do on. a. Let's do a debate. We're gonna. Game over. I'm gonna study so hard, just to crush you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you have anything else to go through on your? Uh, I don't think so. I could go over a list of. I, you guys can research it to look into it. Um, on your end, uh, there's there's blood tests you can get to. If you're curious about your iron levels and the that sort of stuff, but see where you're at. Yeah, that's about it. Um, the thing is about giving blood is that you know if you go down that road, I mean, your body's designed to. It's kind of funny. Bloodletting used to be a treatment for things. Yeah, I mean, they used to like flush you out. It's like changing the oil, kind of. Yeah, I mean, it seems kind of they put leeches on you. Yeah. Right, and it seems kind of crazy, but there's probably something to it. Mm-hmm. Right, I mean, it helps to kind of clean yourself up. Uh, rebuild from fresh a fresh supply. That's why fasting is such a good idea. I mean, it gets your body in that state of it's just cleaning itself out during that during that period. So anyway, uh, I've got two more things to cover here. So number one, we did talk about this I think a couple podcasts ago, just about sleep and and light during sleep. Uh, this was a, a came out of a PNAS. Uh, I actually have no idea what that journal stands for. It could be a you know. PNAS. <laughs> See what I'm married to, people. <laughs> I'm the mature one, which is hard to believe. Uh, March 2022. Uh, in a recent experiment, research observed that sleeping in a room in which either a light or the television is left on or with exposure to outdoor lighting can result in an increase in insulin resistance. We did talk about that. Your body's sensitivity to respond to insulin goes down. Your heart rate goes up. Force of heart contractions go up. Because these are risk factors for heart disease, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, 
the finding highlights the importance of ensuring that the room is dark at bedtime. So it's certainly something that we've talked about before, and this is not just one study. I mean, there's many studies that talk about this, and this is becoming more and more obvious that darkness during sleep, as much dark as possible, especially the artificial lights, LEDs, that blue wavelength light really seems to upset the body's hormones and chemistry, which pulls it out of the state that we want to get into when we sleep and results in, you know, I mean, you can't be awake for very long. Like if you just stayed up, you'd die from that. You can literally die from just staying up. And when you don't get sleep and it gets interrupted, your body acts like it's up. So insulin sensitivity, heart rate goes up, all that stuff. You know, that's what happens when we're awake. So there's, you know, making sure that things are dark, important. And then the last one I have is just about vitamin D and uh, diabetic neuropathy. According, uh, this came out of uh, British Journal of Nutrition, April 2022. According to a review of data from 26 studies, this was a big review. They looked at 26 studies that were done and did what's called a meta-analysis. So you kind of put all the different findings of these different studies together. You do some fancy statistics. Type 2 diabetes uh, with insufficient or deficient vitamin D levels are significantly more likely to experience peripheral diabetic neuropathy, which is nerve damage that occurs because of too much sugar in your bloodstream, which is damaging for nerves. Um, so they're much more likely to experience the diabetic neuropathy, the nerve issues, than diabetics with healthy vitamin D status. So it doesn't treat diabetes, right? Fasting mm -hmm. would treat diabetes. Uh, well, it depends on which type, but... Um, you know, eating properly, moving, getting your body's insulin sensitivity down. But this helps to, vitamin D helps to protect the nerves, it seems. Uh, this finding suggests that maintaining sufficient vitamin D levels should be a goal of management in diabetes. We've seen this across the board. Again, this is how I think you know that vitamin D is an essential nutrient. We've seen this with diabetes. We've seen this with COVID. We've seen vitamin D with cancer. You know, it's essential for health. And so if you don't have an adequate amount of this hormone, vitamin D, it's actually a it's hormone, a hormone yep. uh, in your body. Hormones are just protein chemicals that unlock genes. They allow different, they're the keys that turn on gene expression. Uh, I believe it's over 2,000 different genes that vitamin D is responsible for regulating expression of. That's a lot. Yeah. Immune system. We talk about calcium, right? So calcium, I think even magnesium absorption is tied into vitamin D. I don't think it's, I think magnesium affects vitamin D absorption which it then does. affects calcium absorption. Everything's tied together, of course. Right. Which is why there's critics for vitamin, right. against vitamin, uh, supplementing with vitamin D3. Right. So because you, of that magnesium calcium imbalance, because, all right, I'm sorry. I just got to throw this out here. Um, D3 is cholecalciferol. So what cholecalciferol does is increase your absorption of calcium in your gut. Correct. And if you're already hypercalcified, it could have negative effects. Correct. However, the argument against that is you don't throw away vitamin D3 just because there's one thing that it affects that we're already too high in. I would argue that that's a problem, but the problem isn't vitamin D3. The problem is still too much calcium in the in the body anyway from our diet, etc. And right. that the solution needs, I mean, so so in the vein of going, okay, let's argue, it might be very true, but what about the other 2,000 genes that are are being used to express health, inflammation, all this sort of stuff? Um, my argument, we've talked about this. I, I still, again, you can have that. It's a, it's a valid argument, but it's too, in my opinion, it's too narrow scoped just on the calcium problem. 
and the, most people's problem with calcium is not that they have the reason we have so much calcium is because we have too much vitamin D3 in our body. Like we're so good at absorbing the calcium. It's just way too abundant in our diet. Right. That could be another debate though, because I can argue a little bit about that now. Let's go. All right. No, you might, maybe you might win the ca the carnivore diet debate, Let's debate the thing but right I now. might win this D3 thing. All right. What? You want to debate now? No. I want to get my ducks in a row. I want to, <laughs> I want to read up. All right. Throw study to, after study. For to you. be continued. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Studies that were done in an allopathic disease treatment. Oh, probably mindset, not. Not in a health Maybe yours mindset. was. Not true. No? Okay. I mean, sunshine is essential it's just yeah, tell that people are arguing right but the per, the right blood test to actually know your vitamin d levels is that um d125 which isn't often ran in a typical vitamin d lab just FYI. yeah which i now i don't necessarily disagree with we should do a full vitamin d3 recap one day okay and then we can debate that if fine. you want to fine um Oh, the other one I had was, no, I think that's it. Yep, that's it. All right. But that does bring us to our teaching portion <laughs> uh, where we do want to talk, you know, again, we've, we've, you've heard me, I think even the last episode, we pick on studies a little bit. We picked on a little bit today, just because again, these studies are done uh, in an allopathic paradigm, which is a disease prevention paradigm, not a health building paradigm, right? So the question is, so like here's an analogy. So if you had a plant that was withered, right? What's what would you think of, Kate? I would think of is it being watered? Okay. So that's the first thing most people, healthy people are going to think or most sane people are going to think about, which is healthy. Uh are is the plant being watered? Okay. So if that's logical, right? So that makes sense. We know that plants need water, right? Right. 100% of the time. Yeah. yeah, it could be more. Cactuses need less. Right? Other plants need more. Okay, so that can vary, but they do need water. Life needs water. We know that. Uh, in, a, in this allopathic randomized clinical control trial setting, what you try and do is isolate to one variable. So interestingly, most of these studies that we go over are observational studies, right? So what they look at is, and maybe we'll do that on a later date, is talk about an observational study, but they look after the fact. So you try and... You use statistics to try and filter out lifestyle choices, like whether people smoke or not, other things that can be impacting a negative outcome, right? So if you're studying heart disease, for instance, and you want to know, does fish oil prevent heart disease? So you can do it in a randomized controlled trial study way, where you bring these people in, you have two groups, half the group blindly means the researchers don't know, and the and the Patients don't know what they're taking. So you yeah. take out bias, which is the single most effective therapy ever studied. Uh, placebo. Yes. Right? Uh, that's a true story. True statement. Um, or you do it after the fact and you go, that people self-report, for instance, did you take fish oil? Yes. You know, and then they have a group where they'll say like, oh, people that took fish oil didn't seem to make a difference on people that didn't. Well, but there's also all these other millions of factors that it's almost impossible to isolate right mm -hmm. anyway in a randomized control trial a randomized clinically controlled trial study you're able to control that a little bit better as far as at least the one variable 
did people take fish oil in what amount? When did they take it? That's all controlled. So some, some people would get fake fish oil. Other people would get real fish oil. You run the study, you do this for two years, three years, five years, whatever it is. And you look at did how many heart attacks occurred during that time. Again, it's not the question isn't, is fish oil essential for normal body function? It's, did fish oil prevent heart attacks? We looked at it at the end. Going back to the plant analogy, uh, so we know that if, let's say you had, uh, so you have two plants, both dry, you give them one water, one, or you have 10 plants in each category, right? You yeah. give 10 dry, withered plants water, and then you give 10 withered plants fake water, whatever that is, right? Mm -hmm. You pretend to water them, okay? So I'm just using an analogy of randomized control trial study. If the plants didn't, you know, they may look at after the fact and go, oh, as it turns out that none of the plants got any greener. They didn't unwither. So therefore, water is not useful for withered plants. And you would go, well, how could that be the case? Well, what if the plants were kept without sunlight, right? right? So in a basement with no light, you can give a plant water, which is essential for health. But if it's in sunlight or out of sunlight, it's not, it's still deficient in something. It's not going to bounce back to life. Does that make sense? I mean, you get that. Hopefully the people listening get that. The problem with that is that in that study, a, the right conclusion is water is not good for withered plants, right? right? And that's the problem with going down this disease-focused intervention style. Is this lifestyle thing good for cancer, heart disease, diabetes, da 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 da, da. Mm -hmm. There's so many other factors that can influence those diseases as well that is impossible to control for or we may not understand everything totally that it can give you a very false sense of if you ask a question like is this essential for health sometimes you like there's things you just can't study with a randomized control trial study there's things that you have to look at logically there's things you have to look at observationally going back looking at healthy people did these healthy people are paleo ancestors that didn't have bone cancers and can't we can find how, how did they live and we try and mimic that right mm -hmm. so that's a lot of where we come from um and so we've talked about that a little bit on podcasts why you know some of those studies if they're done in disease prevention everything that we're going over is like we having we're having to like interpret how does this translate into a healthy lifestyle thing i mean you and i have we talked about this on the last last podcast about you know skipping breakfast people were on less healthy if you skip breakfast than if you didn't, which people who don't, who would look at that and go, well, so time restrict eating, not eating breakfast is actually bad for you. When you and I will argue that it's actually a very beneficial thing to the human, mm -hmm. but that doesn't, all that the question answered was did not eating breakfast, they didn't, they were, they tried to filter out things like age and smoking, but you can't, like that doesn't, that didn't exclude what if people ate that third meal at midnight every night. Right. And what they ate and everything else. It's like, it just doesn't work in that. Like it doesn't, it didn't answer the question they think, but it was published and it was, you know, so that's kind of the weakness in a lot of these studies. Um, and then there's another thing that, especially this is used, this whole concept of like, so you turn on the TV and you see a Lipitor commercial and Lipitor is 54% effective at reducing the risk of heart attack. Right. And so you, anyone who's, I, and I didn't know this until I learned it, obviously, you look at that and go, okay, well, so that's 54%. That's a pretty good risk or a pretty good uh, reduction. reduction in risk. And we're going to talk about something, how statistics, there's a quote by Mark Twain. And let me just pull it up here because it's brilliant. Um, shoot. 
Okay. It's something like there are three ways, there are three types of lies. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. Okay. So in a lot of these studies, uh, they, where, we're, where we're trying to look at, did this intervention, Lipitor, a statin, right, prevent heart attacks? They're going to use something called a relative risk reduction. And when we talk about the side effects, we're going to use something, the negative effects, we're, they use a number called absolute risk reduction, okay, to give you the percentages. And they're not wrong. There's, it's a right way. It's, they're actually right numbers, but they mean different things. So Which let's, is quite deceptive. Let's break this down. Let's say your chance of getting hit by lightning is one in a million, right? That's an absolute risk. Your absolute risk of getting hit by lightning is one in a million. I actually don't know what the number is. I'm just making it up. So if I now have an intervention, let's say I give you a medication and I can drop your risk of getting hit by lightning to one in two million, right? So you went from one in a million to one in two million. That's a relative risk reduction of 50%, right? So I can drop your risk of getting hit by lightning by 50% if you take this medication for five years, let's say, mm -hmm. okay? Your relative risk went from one in a million to one in two million, meaning... It was rare to begin with. It was rare to begin with, and it's it's statistically less rare, but it wasn't going to happen in the first place. Yeah. Does that make sense? So your relative risk reduction, your absolute risk reduction changed very little from one in a million to one in two million. Mm -hmm. So changed from never going to happen to never going to happen, right? But a 50% relative risk reduction. So when we look at things like, um, like statins for heart disease, okay, so... Uh, and there's, there's all sorts of different statins. There's Lipitor. There's, I don't even know them anymore. We used to do a whole workshop on this, but there's a great book called The Great Cholesterol Myth. If any of you are interested in statins, this whole book is super fascinating. Written by medical doctors, by the way. Um, but the, the, they claim a relative risk reduction of 54%, but the absolute risk reduction was so small. So here's how they run this. When they do these studies, they typically pick young, healthy people. Okay, so especially in what's called primary prevention studies, meaning studies that are, if you, ha you haven't had a heart attack yet. So let's say you're a person whose cholesterol, and this is true for the flu vaccine. This exactly. is true for, I mean, everything, any drug. What we do is we try and take healthy, low-risk people. This is how they design the studies. So your risk of a 30-year-old with, they, st they, they still pick people, I don't, you know, with, elevated cholesterol levels, but they're low risk, let's say for a heart attack. And so we can, does a statin lower cholesterol? Yes. Or who cares? The question is, does it prevent a heart, a heart attack, right? Mm -hmm. If it changes a blood value, who the flip cares if it doesn't actually change by, you know, they say that cholesterol causes heart attacks. We have a big qualm with that, mm -hmm. but let's just say that's the truth. Okay. Um, and so they pick people that are like 30 year old, relatively low risk. They give them the medication. And basically, like, uh, the the event was so low to begin with that it's like a one in a million event. Now, it's not really that low, that low an event. But the, the absolute risk changes so small compared to the relative risk, for, especially for primary prevention studies. So it gives them a really high relative risk reduction. It sounds good, 54% relative risk reduction. But what you want to know is how that translates to, okay, what's my risk of of you know, how do I, how, as the, a regular person, how do we interpret these numbers? And there's this statistical method called number needed to treat. And I think this is brilliant. It doesn't tell the whole story, 
but it gives us a really good idea of, okay, if I'm going to do this intervention, really what it, it takes the absolute risk re reduction number and puts it in a way that you can understand. So here's, for instance, statins, okay? Uh, this is a review of all, a lot of different, I mean, I've got the links here. I can put this in. There's a website, and I'll put this in the show notes, thennt, T-H-E-N-N-T.com. And you can go in here and you can look at, if you go under the review section of this website, you can look at therapy NNT reviews. Uh, and I mean, it's got everything from cardiology, anesthesiology, critical care, dermatology, emergency medicine. So let's let's just because we were on the on the statins thing, let's pick. I just had it up here. Statins for heart disease prevention without prior heart disease. Pull this up. So what this does is it says, okay, how many people have to do the intervention for X period of time for it to prevent one occurrence of what they're trying to stop? So in this case, it's heart attacks or strokes or whatever. Cardiovascular events. Yes. So statins, you can see on the TV, it's a 50, we're going to reduce it by 54%, right? The NNT is 104. So meaning one in 104 people were helped prevent a heart attack, okay, on the stats. If, so here's what that means. This is done over five years. So means you'd have to have 104 people take a statin for five years for it to prevent one heart attack that a group of 104 people who didn't take the statin, that number. So here's how this works. You have 104 people who took a statin for five years and you have 104 people who didn't take a statin for four years. And what they look at is the number of events in each of those two groups. And as soon as that, you know, is one different, that's the NNT. Okay, so you have a chance of, a if you take a statin, if you don't have heart disease, you just have high cholesterol. Okay, but no heart disease. And we give you the statin. 104 people, you have a one out of 104 chance of it preventing a heart attack. Not even death, just preventing a heart attack. And is that... One percent. Well, it'd be less than yeah. I mean, less just under one percent. Yes, absolute risk is less than one percent of benefit. Correct. But again, when you it's so here's how absolute risk. It's the inverse of that number, and that's how you get the yeah. one over one hundred and four. Right. Right. Is one percent. It'd be point nine eight percent relative risk. One over one hundred and four. It's the reciprocal or whatever that mathematical term is for preventing stroke. It's 154. So again, you'd have to give 154 people a statin for five years if you don't have heart disease for it to prevent one occurrence of stroke versus 154 people who didn't take a statin. So you might have had three people who've had a stroke in that group or whatever it is. It'd be two in the in the statin group, right? So when if you... if like, I just think if we're honest and we're going, okay, what's my risk reduction here? Well, you have one out of 154 chance that you're not even going to die. You're just not going to have an occurrence of the event, right? Mm -hmm. So, and then the harms. So, one in 50 people develop diabetes on a statin. And one in 10 had muscle damage. So, we know that statins affect muscle damage. Rob the body of kill Q10 is actually, actually not good for the heart, which is a muscle, by the way. Yeah. Uh, there's there's some mental issues that can occur with some of this stuff. But you just look at, so then they what they'll do is say, well, your risk is one out of 50, which is what, 
mm-hmm. 2% ri- risk of, you have 54% relative risk of preventing a heart attack, but only a 2% risk of, of ha- having a side effect like developing diabetes or one in 10 muscle pain, muscle damage. So they're, what they do is they lot, basically unpurposely mislead people and they use two different types of statistics to give you, and they're both true, but you, you're speaking different languages when you're talking about these different things. It's crooked in my opinion. And it's they 100%. Know, they know that they're doing it. This is why people are like, what well, a you, racket. Don't, you don't trust the drug companies? No, I don't trust the drug companies. At all. Never. <laughs> like, I, I, how, many, Never. how many times do you have to be lied to? And I don't even care if it's there's some good stuff. I think I've earned the right to be, I think we've earned the right to be skeptical of what people, <laughs> these people tell us. Right. When they, when we purposely, you watch the TV commercials, when I did my, the, our, our, the cholesterol heart disease workshop, I would play these commercials. Like I got them off YouTube mm-hmm. and, and we can go on YouTube and look at these commercials and you can, and this is what's funny is you'll hear things like when diet and exercise aren't enough, except that diet and exercise do a better job at preventing heart disease and stroke than most statins do. Right. Right. And Not to mention it, the laundry list of side effects. They right. have to list. And what's interesting, if you read the book, The Great Cholesterol Myth, this is not the purpose of this podcast, but the, if you read that book, The Great Cholesterol Myth, they actually think that the, and this is also, there was a Canadian radio, it was called The Heart of the Matter. I've actually got this thing. I bought it. Um, you may be able to find it on YouTube. It was a Canadian, it was from the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Company. It was a radio show called The Heart of the Matter. And they, it is fascinating to listen to where you can have, Different people, doctors, advocates for cholesterol statins, and then researchers who are able to look at the data independently, and they can come to two different conclusions when they read the study. And it's everything we're talking about right now, using absolute relative risk and how glorious this stuff is. And then the the researchers talking about like, I mean, she's using a relative risk. When you look at the absolute risk reduction, it's It's not good. Minimal, Yeah. yeah. Especially when there's consequences to this stuff. So the heart of the matter, that's really good. I'll try and put show notes to that. I had to, I bought it. I had to buy it from the CBC. CBC. I like bought a disc or somehow I bought it. I can't remember. Uh, but it was, it was fascinating. Um, oh yeah. So here I can change the thing. I can view as percentage. So 98% of people, by the way, saw no benefit taking a statin. Oh my gosh. Okay. 0% were helped by being saved from death. 0.96% 0.96% were helped by preventing a heart attack and 0.65% were helped by preventing a stroke. Again, if you, that's, those are absolute risk reduction numbers, not relative risk reduction numbers, which is what they'd rather point this to you as. But then when you look at the NNT, I just think that's really good. Uh, there's a, another website called the Cochrane Review, which they review. This is an independent organization in Europe and they review all these claims made by drug companies. Uh, studies and some they give a thumbs up to some they some they give a thumbs down to either conflicts of interest bad bad study design or whatever and theirs was i don't know if i've i've tried to find a covid shot on here and i couldn't find it i'm not super surprised uh but uh, it's one in 71 so you'd have yeah again if you get a flu shot your chance of taking the shot and it preventing a flu is one in 71 so if 71 group of people, this is for adults, um, 71 people take the flu shot. It's different for kids. I actually think it's lower for kids, but I can't, I don't know that for sure, but we could go to the website and check it out. But this website is really cool. So I got into this, uh, reviewed this with a patient the other day. Um, 
with, he has high blood pressure. And so I said, okay, so let's, let's pull up blood pressure. Oh, okay. So, uh, I mean, it's just interesting. People taking an aspirin to prevent a heart attack or stroke. No deaths were prevented. One in 33, one in 333 avoided a non-fatal heart attack. Uh, and it, they didn't, it was unclear if ischemic strokes were avoided, but one in 250 suffered a major bleeding event, right? So you have a one in 333 chance of avoiding a non-fatal heart attack and a one in 250, you have a greater chance by taking an aspirin every day of have a major bleeding event than you do of it preventing or told that that has changed. I think they've literally stopped telling people to take an aspirin nowadays. Yeah, I think so. Um, anyway, this is super interesting guys. And when we start to look at this stuff is we're just dealing with some of these interventions, especially with medications. It's, I mean, the guy that I showed this to, he kind of showed his doctor, his doctor wanted him on a blood pressure medication and, and you know, he kind of reviewed this and the doctor kind of said, I still want you on it. That's what they do. But you know, he's kind of like, well, I don't really know. Like, so we've been working with him trying to do some alternative things to help right? Mm -hmm. Get his body adapting better, not deal with the high blood pressure per se, but get his body in a better state, losing weight, dealing with some like nutrition stuff for art to help with artery health and some of those different things, getting him adjusted, of course. So the NNT.com, super interesting. Uh, let's look at statins for heart disease with heart disease. So if you actually have heart disease, right? So primary prevention, not very good. Uh, with heart disease, one in 83 people, their life was saved. One in 39 helped prevent a non-fatal heart attack and one in 125 preventing a stroke. Again, one in 50 still harmed for diabetes. One in 10 were harmed with muscle damage. So those numbers are better, but again, still one in 39, you have a one in 39% chance or one in 39 chance, which is a 2.6. So the side, getting a side effect, you are more like... Even in this instance, you are more likely to get a side effect than you are to be helped by the drug. Yeah, it depends on the side effect. Like 10% were harmed by muscle damage. Muscle damage, okay, okay so that's not death. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, I mean, side effect in an event. I mean, in a case like a death from a heart attack, that's a pretty significant problem. Right, yeah. Uh, hard to come back from that. Yep. Uh, 2% were harmed by developing diabetes, which is a huge risk factor for heart disease, I might add. Seems yeah. a little crazy. Uh, but yeah, 1.2% were helped from being saved from death and 2.6% were helped from preventing. So they're small, 96% saw no benefit. So, and this is the thing. It's like, and then again, you have to take it for five years. It's a five-year study. Uh -huh. Over five years, you have to have 90, let's go look at, let's look at the numbers. 39 people, two groups. You'd have to take, 39 people would have to take statin for five years for it to prevent one non-fatal heart attack. So, and again, I just look at this from the perspective of, I don't want anyone to die, right? I don't even want the one in 39 to die. The point is, is, is there other things that we should be focusing on that have a bigger impact in our health than just going, oh, I'm going to take this stat, I'm going to take this statin because it's, I'm not going to have a heart attack now because I have a statin. Right. We're, it, these drugs don't work like we think. And I'm not kidding you. You should go through and look at this stuff. Cause I mean, it's not good. Like most of the stuff is super ineffective. And, and part of it is, is this isn't, I don't mind that. Like, I don't care that it's ineffective. I mean, you could even look at the, uh, 
Okay, they have the Mediterranean diet, which I actually don't think they pushed Mediterranean diet for heart disease for a long time. I actually don't think it's the best, the best diet. There's some good healthy fats in that, but there's there's a lot of things in that. So if you have Mediterranean diet without heart disease, one in sixty one. So literally, if you just ate a Mediterranean diet, you you're better off than taking a statin by far. You have one in 61 were helped. And there was also no side effects from that. So how many times you go to the doctor <laughs> and you have high cholesterol, you don't have heart disease, but you have high cholesterol. And the doctor's like, well, I want to put you on a statin so you don't die of a heart attack when there's side effects to that. But you could just eat a Mediterranean diet, which is actually pretty, I mean, I mean it's yeah. not that hard to do. I mean, it's like, it's easy. Yes. It's just whole foods, but it's like fish and grains. You can eat pasta still. Yeah. Like, it's not even that restrictive compared to what you and I think actually would be the best diet for a human. Yeah. Uh, it, it's more effective. And it's still 1 in 61. That's not great. Yeah. Right? But it's more effective than taking a statin. And this is the, this is the whole point. It's doing one thing to prevent taking a thing, doing a diet, one thing to prevent a disease mm-hmm. is crazy. Because disease is not caused by one thing. Right. Disease is caused by many factors together right that that so the we have to try and learn what are the fundamental factors diet nutrition sleep what does a human body require for optimal function health nerve communication and then how do we optimize that so that we don't put ourselves in a body where we in a state where we can break down so imagine coupling a mediterranean diet with getting your 10,000 steps every day losing weight getting sleep without lights on at night I would put, I will bet every ounce of money that I have, I didn't bet my children, that that's more effective by far than taking a statin, right? When you focus on building health versus treating a disease, which is caused by, there's so many things that go into that. It's just crazy to me. And this, again, well, just take the COVID shot. You're going to get I'm sorry. I've looked at this stuff for years. The reason I'm skeptical is because nothing works the way that they say it's going to work. Oh, and as it turns out, remember it, before the rollout, they were saying it was nearly 100 percent effective. Yeah, you're not, you're not <laughs> going to get COVID if you get this vaccine. No, that's not how it works. Not how any, it's not and how it any vaccine has worked, to... including polio back in the day. Right. So we were talking about this the other day. This is not the point. We were told that these vaccines wiped out childhood illness, eradicated diseases. Right. Except now, 50, 70 years later. Right, 70 years later, the vaccines that we use are, the biggest ones are flu and the COVID is new. Mm-hmm. We can't eradicate these things with the vaccine. No, it just prevents so we have got hospitalization, 70, 70 years, more technology, better rollout, everything else. And all we've done was maybe preventing death. severe but disease. these things, <laughs> so every other drug you look on here doesn't do nearly as effectively as what we think it does. But we're, But we're supposed to believe that no other things had a factor that polio was only the polio vaccine, that it wasn't sanitation, it wasn't. And I'm not against the polio vaccine. The point is, is like we, we've put this, we have an untrue uh, view of how we need to be healthy, what has gotten us healthy, what has helped, all this sort of stuff. Like World War, I'm a big fan of antibiotics during World War I. I'm sure it saved a lot of lives as these poor soldiers were living in trenches in winter and with wounds and whatever. And we need that stuff in crisis. We need this stuff, but like just go through here and and look at all this stuff from the vaccines to everything else. It's like, man, uh, 
it's not nearly as effective as we think. And getting back to that plant analogy too, where you have a withering plant and you see a withering plant, anybody in their right mind looking at a withered plant, would you suggest injecting that plant with a vaccine to make it healthier? Would anybody suggest um, sprinkling medication in the soil to make it healthier? Right, you would always or lopping off the all the dead leaves. Right, you would go back to, well, sunlight, healthy soil, uh, water. Oops, what's going on here? Sorry, I had. Uh, you probably heard that noise. the The podcast is telling me it's time to end the podcast. Yeah. Uh, which is fine. Good, good, good to end on this. But yeah, you you would go back to the fundamental basics. Of what plants you even sing Require to them. You even sing, you pet our plants that you're growing. You pet them. I do. Well, I mimic the the wind. You're petting them. To, and it's, yeah, it's heavy petting is what it is. It's a little aggressive. They It um, strengthens their roots. Gotcha. Okay. So my, on that note. My poison plants. On that note, uh, check out the NNT. Uh, my advice to you, I think the takeaway here is... If you find yourself in a situation where you want to know if a treatment <laughs> is, you're going to go down that road where you're, you're going to focus on, does this treatment affect this outcome, right? The answer, you should look at is something called the NNT. And I just, I, my argument is doing an intervention. We even see this with people coming in to us for back pain. We have 10 people come in for back pain. Now our NNT, I'm guarantee you is much higher than all of this, but most people get better. Some people don't. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's not some people it's because it's not just usually one thing. I can adjust them and help the alignment mobility of the spine. But I, you see this all the time, for instance, with women that have had C-sections, right? So you, we've cut the core mm -hmm. to get the baby out. So their core strength is it heals back, but it does not heal back at 100 percent, not even close. And I find a staggering amount of those women with. So there's this other variable here, like what's your core strength like? Right. How much do you sit? Do you smoke? I mean, go back to that dementia thing. All those things are also going to affect something like back pain, mm -hmm. right? And so if we do a treatment with the idea of it, one thing ending a disease or a symptom, we're going to be sorely disappointed. Yeah. It's not how it's supposed to work. So then some of them argue, well, I'm going to eat Mediterranean and take the statin. Okay. I mean, you can go down that road if you want to, but you know, again, our disease is not caused by a, a lack, lack of, of statin. Yes, a lack of an of a medication generally, right? And that, I'm not against all that stuff. It's just this concept of like, it turns out that when we put our energy and focus into living right, lifestyle right, you know, it's going to cover a lot of bases and you're going to notice a lot of improvement uh, in your health and a lot more than just relying on, on these medications that were being doled out at, you know, massive rates. Unfortunately, with, without... Drugs where, where are, how are doctors getting paid though? And it's the, the reality is, is that, you know, going down that road, it just doesn't, at the end of the day, we maybe, maybe our blood pressure is lower, maybe our cholesterol levels are lower, but it's really not making us harder to kill. No. Right. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's you, we died earlier. Uh, we, we died uh, with lower cholesterol. Right. Right. I mean, it's it, for most people, I mean, again, hundred yeah, percent. it's just, and when there's other treatments out there, uh, perspectives that are 
you know, again, if your house is on fire, you have to call the fire department. You and I are not arguing against that. It's the concept of relying on that fire department to right. If we think that's what's going to keep our house from lighting on fire, that's backwards and crazy. So, and the more you're equipped with knowledge and tools on how to actually live a healthy lifestyle and be hard to kill, then if you do go in for your doctor's checkup, you'll be, you will have those tools to either say no thanks or question them as to their, their studies. Like if, if your doctor is telling you to get on a heart, a heart medication or a blood pressure medication, which are probably one of the two most common things people get hooked up on at the doctor's office, ask, ask these statistics or show them that website. And remember the doctor works for you. You're paying them. You're not so many times. Like I didn't want to take it. But my doctor made me. Right. What? Right. Your health is your responsibility. This is your your body. We only get one of them. Yes. You you go buy a car that way. I didn't want to buy this car, but the salesman made me. Yeah. I mean, we don't. Come on. Yes. Come on, guys. But they're smarter than me. They know what they're talking about. Yep, that's true. All right. But ask ask good questions. Consultant. You're in charge of your health. Not. I tell us to even patients that come in and see us. I mean. You're in charge of your health. I'm the guy with the blood pressure. Like, I'm not telling him whether he should take his blood pressure medication or not. He's a smart individual. Mm-hmm. Like, you guys are not, we're, you guys are smart. And when you understand these variables, when you, when you understand the language that they're speaking to you in, and again, I'm not saying the doctors, I think this is a drug company thing, but when you understand the game that's being played and then you start to become educated in, okay, here's what this really means. I mean, I just don't know, like, if my bank was giving out a thousand dollars, but I had a one in seventy-one chance, I wouldn't even drive there. Yeah, like, like it's not worth my effort. Right. I'm not even driving there, right? One in seventy-one, which is a flu shot. Like that's it's a one in seventy-one chance to prevent a, a flu, the a flus. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, yeah. All right, guys, that's it for today. Uh, as always, be hard to kill and Jesus loves you.